Welcome. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and um, I'm glad you're joining us this morning. All right, happy Thanksgiving, y'all. If you didn't know, that's this week. Um, Coming up, some of you are like, I've been preparing for weeks, and some of you are like, oh man, I totally forgot. So happy Thanksgiving. You get to go eat food with people, right, hopefully. And if not, let us know because we'll invite you over and you can eat food with our people, okay? Um, it, is a, it is a great time to move into gratitude and uh, share a little bit of joy with family, even the weird ones, all right? So um, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. We are continuing our study in the Lord's Prayer uh, this morning. So grab your Bibles. We're going over to Matthew chapter 6. In our Bibles, if you're grabbing one of our Bibles, we're going over to page 811, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Um, so kind of in preparation for this, um, is, is, is multi-level marketing still a thing? Is that, is that still a thing? Um, in the 90s, there was an explosion of MLM. Multi-level marketing was everywhere, right? Everything was being marketed, right? It started in like, I don't know, the 60s or 70s with Amway. They're like the godfather of multi-level marketing, right? Laundry detergent. Everybody wanted multi-level marketed laundry detergent, right? Um, but the thing with multi-level marketing, what, what's appealing generally is not the product as much as the dream, right? Because what, what gets sold with multi-level marketing is, is not the product itself. Ooh, laundry detergent. No, it's the dream of residual income, right? This idea that somehow I can build this thing and then pretty soon checks just magically appear on a monthly basis, and, and I can have financial independence, and I can have financial freedom, and, and others can too. And, and the goal of multi-level marketing, if we're honest, generally is not to sell product. It's to recruit people, right? Because the way, that's the way that works. The more downlines I have, as we call them, right? The more people I have selling underneath me, and the more people they recruit selling under them, and the more people they recruit selling under them, the more trickles back up into this what we call residual income stream, right? Now, here's the thing. I, I'm, if you're in multi-level marketing, there are ways to do it that, that are good, okay? And, and so I'm not in any way saying everybody who does it is bad or whatever, um, but I can tell you it is dangerous. Um, it is dangerous. Let me give you an illustration tell you why. One time, um, Lauren and I were invited over by some new friends. This was in the 90s. Uh, we were, we were, I was a new believer. Lauren wasn't. Um, but, but we were young, and we were part of this church that was um, older, um, and, and really needed some revitalization. Honestly, it just kind of, people would, were just kind of going through the motions and, and things weren't happening. And as a young guy, um, and just kind of starting to taste um, the passion for the mission of the gospel, just starting to taste this desire to see people um, have their faith renewed. I just had this restlessness, like, man, I just, I want more for this church. I want more for these people. And I got invited by over, we got invited by over this, this other couple. And and I saw them as potential young leaders as well. And, and I, I mean, I just kind of filled in the story. I'm like, man, they're inviting us over because, because they love this church and they want to see it revitalized too. They, they want to see people excited about Jesus and excited about grace and, 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 and walking in the reality of their faith, right? So I, I got excited, man. We got invited over and we get to come over for dinner and, and um, you know, we shared a great meal and there was a lot of laughter. And, and then we get kind of toward the end of the meal and, and he's like, man, thank you guys for coming over. And I'm sure you're wondering why we invited you. And I'm like, no, no, I know, I know. He's like, you know, we, we've just got this incredible opportunity for you. I'm like, what? Right? We want to we bless you, right? And then, of course, they had the language. But what that leads to eventually is we've got this great business opportunity and we want you to join us in it. Um, that was a real downer, right? 
Um, at that point, I, I walked away, honestly, after we expressed our regrets. We were not going to join them in, in selling long distance through multi-level marketing. That was a thing in the 90s, long distance telephone. Um, but, uh, you know, honestly, I walked away sad. Um, I walked away, honestly, feeling a little resentful because I felt duped. Like, like I felt, man, I, I thought you wanted to know me. I, I thought you were interested in, in me. And really what you were interested in was how I could benefit you, right? And, and I just, I just, I was disappointed. And this is why multi-level marketing is dangerous. Again, there are ways to do this with integrity. But here's the danger of multi-level marketing is that if you're not careful, it's going to lead you to see every relationship as a business opportunity. And in fact, when you go to the conferences, that's basically what they teach you to do, is analyze your circle of friends and their circle of friends and then their circle of friends to find as many downlines or business opportunities as you can. And and again, there are ways to do this with integrity, but it's really, really dangerous, right? Um, Because what ends up happening is, is my situation, what I found was that people would approach me and man, my radar was up, especially in the 90s when everything was MLM. Um, I got to the point where people would approach me and I sensed, man, this is going toward MLM. I'd be like, how much do you expect to make off me? Just let's start, stop the conversation right here. How much do you hope to make off me? Can I just pay you that? Right, and we'll put an end to this conversation now, right? I'll just pay you and then because I'm going to resent you if I feel like you're using me. So let me just give you money as a gift and then we'll move on and actually have a friendship. Can we do that? Uh, that generally didn't go well. Um, that didn't win a lot of friends, um, but it did keep me from resenting people. Uh, here's the thing, y'all. I hate it when it's done to me, right? I really do. I, I put a real premium on authenticity. That's a, that's a personal value of mine, um, and I, I just crave it in my relationships. Um, but here's the irony. I am often not authentic with God. That very thing that I just described is often how I approach God if I'm really honest about it. Um, The reality is I often try to use God as a means to an end instead of approaching God to value Him, to know Him, to love Him, um, and to be known by Him. So here's here's where we're going with this series, right? My goal, my hope is that coming out of this series, we will be reinvigorated in our prayer lives, right? That we will have a new energy to engage and enter into prayer, right? If we want a vibrant, life-giving prayer life, the kind of prayer life that gives us hope when we're discouraged, that gives us comfort when we're hurt, that gives us courage when we're afraid, that gives us rest when, when we are just exhausted with life. If we want the kind of prayer life that, that when we enter into it, we walk out of it more invigorated, more alive, more joyful, more ready for life. We want that kind of prayer life. We have to make sure our prayers are authentic. We have to, we have to make sure that we're not using God as a means to an end. All right, so let's take a look at our text, and uh, we'll dig into this some more. But we're looking at Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at verses 5 through 18. So I'm going to start in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so Jesus comes out. We talked about this last week, man. Jesus kind of comes out um, hitting us, right? Don't pray like the hypocrites, right? So he, he begins here. You're going to be tempted to pray like a hypocrite, okay? Um, let's go ahead and get that offense out of the way if that offends you. Um, Jesus is just saying it's real, okay? It's real. You're going to be tempted to pray like a hypocrite. Don't do it, right? You have that temptation. In fact, that's probably going to be um, uh, a struggle. Uh, but, but if you want a real and vibrant and life-giving prayer life, you've you got you to gotta unearth this thing. You've got you to gotta recognize that, that there is a, a hypocritical way to pray, right? Now, hip- hypocrisy is, is the, the root of hypocrisy is, is, means to be an actor, right? When we put on a mask, when we pretend to be something we're not, right? And last week, we looked at how this requires us to be brutally honest with ourselves as we approach God, right? That we need to take off the mask of our performance. We, we need to meet with God as we really are, right? With, with all of our glory and all of our ruin, with, with all of our virtues and all of our vices, with, with all of our light and all of our darkness. We, we got to stop trying to, to puff up our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. We need to stop trying to put our, our idealized self forward and say, God, meet with, with this person. That's who I really am, this idealized. No, we, we need to be honest, brutally honest with ourselves because, because humility is rooted in honesty. And that allows us to, to actually come into the presence of God and meet God face-to-face, right? Because we can't meet God face-to-face when we have a mask on, right? We're showing up, but we're not letting God meet us, right? So, so we need to actually be honest. Now, this week, we're going to take a look at how that internal honesty needs to be expressed in an external authenticity, that, that we need to embrace this, this radical internal honesty, but then we need to move forward into a, a real, authentic uh, expression of prayer. Now, Jesus highlights two inauthentic forms of prayer and says, don't be like that. The first is, is the religious people. In verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. So he highlights the, the religious leaders of the day. These guys, when it came time for their daily times of prayer, these things were predictable and they happened every day. They just so happened to be in incredibly public places, right? They purposely made sure they were standing when the, when the time came on a street corner where you had a confluence of people and, and the most people could see them in their best prayer clothing praying to God piously. Or they were standing in the synagogue where where everybody gathered, and they made sure they got a nice visible spot where the sunlight came down, and and when they prayed, everybody could see them. He says, don't don't be like that, right? Now, that was a culture that valued prayer, 
And they wanted to be seen valuing what everybody else valued. They wanted a little of that glory to rub off on them. They wanted people to admire them. They wanted people to be jealous of them, to think, oh man, that guy's super spiritual. That guy's like, man, that guy has a real prayer life. That guy's really connected to God. That guy's a real spiritual leader. They wanted that influence, right? And so they prayed in such a way that they would get it. And Jesus says, that's hypocritical because you're not praying to really pray. You're praying to receive something that, that is completely disconnected from it, the, the value of people, right? Now, if you were to ask them, do you really value prayer? I mean, they would have been offended. They'd have been like, of course I value prayer. Don't you see how often I do it? <laughs> and ironically, maybe they actually did. Maybe on some level they really did value prayer. The problem was they valued something else more than prayer. They valued political influence, right? The ability to gain admiration from people, the, the influence that came when people thought they were super spiritual or whatever. In that culture, it gave them influence and power, social clout to be seen in such a way. And they valued that more than they valued actually communication and communion with God. So they used prayer as a means to gain more influence in their society. So it looked like they were praying, but the reality is they were campaigning. It looked like they were worshiping, but really they were pandering. They were trying to get people to admire them, pay attention to them, give them influence. Now, Jesus gives a a second example of inauthentic prayer uh, down in verse 7. He says, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So this time he's not talking about Jewish leadership. He's talking about the other nations. Gentiles just means other nations, right? So the non-Jewish people. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. So in pagan religions, this would have been very common in a a pagan ritual. People would repeat the name of their God over and over and over and over again. Or they would take some sort of religious phrase and they would just say it over and over and over again with the intention of one, either either leveraging God to get Him to do something they wanted Him to do or leverage their own emotional experience so that they could have some sort of transcendent experience, some sort of transcendent emotional experience where they felt like, you know, they were, they were moving beyond the plane of, of their normal existence or their normal uh, um, emotional experience, Right? Um, if I can just work the right formula, then I can get God to do what I want Him to do. If I can just work myself into the right mental state, I'll be able to transcend the limits of, of my own experience, right? And, and, and Jesus is like, man, that's not prayer. That's metaphysical manipulation. That, that's, 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 that's not real. That's hypocritical, right? Don't be like that. Don't pray in order to get some benefit not directly connected to prayer. Don't pray in such a way that you're just manipulating God or manipulating yourself through empty phrases. Now, we're not in that same culture. We're not in that same time, but that doesn't mean we don't face the same temptations to fall into the same errors, right? I I spend a lot of time with young leaders in the church. Um, I coach church planters. I love Church planters, they are some of the youngest, most arrogant people on the face of the earth. Um, they, they dream dreams. Others are afraid to dream and take risks other people are afraid to take, and they often do it for horrible reasons. I'm um, just going to be honest, because a lot of times I sit down with church planters, and, and, and we'll start uncovering some of this stuff. I feel like I'm, I serve them best by helping them um, uncover some of this stuff. And sometimes church planters, honestly, the reason they want to plant a church, when you really get down to it, I mean, they love the gospel, but you know what they love more is the platform. 
They think they're going to be important if they plant a church. They think they're going to be in the spotlight if they plant the church. They've seen other people get the praise of others, and they thought, I want some of that praise. I want some of that influence. People give that people a voice. People give that person clout. I want some of that. And so a lot of times their motivation isn't pure, right? Um, And the reality is very seldom is any of our motivation pure, right? But I serve them well by helping them cover this, right? That's like, hey, man, you, you got, you're, you're, you're trying to do one thing, but it's hypocritical because the reality is you're motivated by something else. Let's, let's uncover that hypocrisy and, and try to, to make it honest and real, right? You value prayer, but you value something else more. The reason you want the platform is because you think somehow that's going to make you important or significant. Somehow that's going to make you worthwhile. Somehow that's going to scratch your need um, for recognition, Right? Now, the reality is um, we do that. We also heap up empty phrases, right, like the Gentiles do. Um, now, we don't do it in the same way they did it, um, but I find that, that it's fairly common. Um, Christian jargon is the weirdest thing. Um, Christian jargon are these phrases we use inside the Christian circles that, that are just weird, and make no sense outside of Christian circles. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they're phrases we use. And, and here's the challenge with Christian jargon. There are things we can say, and we don't even notice we're saying them anymore, right? They don't engage our heads, and they don't engage our hearts, right? When we're praying, oh, Lord, give them traveling mercies. Okay. What judgment from God are you hoping they're going to be preserved from as they travel to Arkansas, right? What, what divine judgment are you hoping God's going to withhold from them, well, that's not what I mean. All right, then what do you mean, right? Why don't you say it, right? What, what hedge are you asking God to build and why, right? And what do you want it made out of? Hedges are ornamental and pretty, but what good are they? They're, you know what I'm saying? Like, Lord, build a hedge around this person, right? We have these ways of saying things that, that the more we say them, the less they mean. Are you following me? Like, we, we just, Lord, may your glory fill this place. All right, what in the world are you talking about? What does that mean? Like, literally, what does that mean? Are you asking for the Shekinah glory to actually appear and strike us all dead? Is that what you want? What is that? What are you saying? I, I just, I don't know. I want God, people to know God is here. All right, well, let's start with actually praying that. And then how does that happen? And what do you mean by that, right? These phrases undercut our mental our, our mental connection and, and, and our emotional connection. When we use these phrases, it's a way of turning off our brain and shutting down our hearts and sounding spiritual, but we're not really saying anything, right? Now, I can get a little bit of trouble here, but this one's, this one's, a, little bit of a, this one's a little bit close to my heart. Um, I think it's funny how we are addicted to saying, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of every prayer. Like it's this, this magical lever. If I just say, in the name of Jesus, amen, click, now it fell down a slot that actually gets to God, right? I've actually ended prayers at times where I didn't say that. Like I just kind of stopped talking like they do in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but no prayers in the Bible end with in Jesus' name, amen, right? That doesn't happen. So I just stopped talking and a dude over here just kind of quietly, in Jesus' name, amen, right? It's his way of, it's his way of pulling the lever and making sure my prayer gets delivered, Right? Um, why do we do that? Well, it's because at one point Jesus said, anything you ask in my name, I will give you. And someone thought, hey, why don't we turn that into a formula? Something you can just say, and once you just say it, it's like a magic lever that just makes it happen. It's an empty phrase. Now listen, there is a thing that's actually called praying in Jesus' name. It means approaching God through the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus. 
It means being mindful of my brokenness and my provision in Christ, my need for a Savior and His tremendous gift of a Savior to me. It means approaching God through the personal work of Jesus. It's way more than just sticking a phrase on the end of a sentence. Listen, when we heap up, heap up empty phrases, we disconnect our brains and we disconnect our hearts and our prayers become less authentic because we're not there. We sound really, really spiritual because we've learned these phrases and how to say them and how to heap them up, but we've become disconnected in the process because you know as well as I do, you can string off 50 million of those phrases and your brain is still thinking about your trip to Target later, right? Because you don't need to think to say those things. Listen, I'm not saying it's bad to say in Jesus' name, amen, so don't get self-conscious, all right? So if if we're praying together and you say it, I'm not going to judge you, all right? But I am going to assume that you're actually engaged in thinking about what you're saying. Because that's the point. We need to be intentional. Right? That's what Jesus is saying is, is that prayer needs to be something that's real for it to be authentic. Right? It, it needs to be something that, that, is, that is real. Um, it needs to be an internal form of honesty combined with an authentic form of expression. Um, So how do we move into authentic prayer? How do we um, how do we discover genuine prayer? Well, first of all, let's define what inauthentic prayer is. Um, and I'm sorry for the notes, people. I'm totally off notes, so just go to the slide with the inauthentic prayer thing. Uh, this is one time we need to be grateful for these guys because I get up here and sometimes I'm jumping all over the place, and they're the ones that have to figure out where to go. Um, inauthentic prayers. Inauthentic prayers is when, is when we're using prayer to get something instead of entering prayer to meet someone. Inauthentic prayer is when we're using prayer to try to get something, some result, some action, something, instead of entering prayer to meet God. Right? Prayer at its heart is conversation. And what's the goal of conversation? I mean, unless you're at a business table, your goal is to close a deal, right? But, but in, in an authentic human conversation, the purpose of conversation is to connect with somebody, isn't it? The purpose of conversation is to learn about them and to reveal to them something about yourself. The purpose of conversation is to know and be known. And if it goes really well, to love and be loved. The goal of conversation is intimacy. And that's the richness that comes from it. Human connection, relational connection, knowing and being known, being valued. The purpose of prayer is intimacy. And the way we foster intimacy with God um, is not coming to Him with a list of all the things we want Him to do, right? Now, there's a place for, for supplication. There's a place for asking for things. There's a time to ask God to give you something you need or to heal a hurt that you have or to give you a blessing that you crave. There's a place for that. But that's a secondary blessing that comes from the primary goal, which is intimacy from God, right? You don't, you don't as a child, you don't come to your father as somebody who's just going to give you food apart from relationship, Right? You come to your father because he is your father. 
You come to your dad because your dad, if you have a good dad, the primary blessing is he's your dad, right? The ancillary blessing is he gives you stuff, and he gives you food, and he gives you a home to stay in, and all the rest of it. The primary blessing is you've got a dad. Many of you got the secondary blessing without the primary, and you've lived in resentment your entire life, right? You, you, you had a dad who wasn't your dad. He gave you all this stuff, but he never gave you yourself. What did that do to you? The primary blessing of relationship is intimacy, and it is what we crave. The primary goal of prayer is moving into relationship with God to know and be known. So there is a place for asking for stuff, but, but it's only when we keep our primary purpose primary, then the secondary purposes come into line, right? Let me give you a human example. Thanksgiving's coming up next week, and it gives you the opportunity to hang out with a lot of family members you haven't seen in a long time. Um, and, 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 and I'm sure you love every one of them, and they're all awesome, and you don't have a weird uncle in the bunch. Um, but when you watch movies, occasionally you'll have that, that family member who only shows up when they need something. Um, and when they show up, they tend to show up in a very similar way, right? They show up, and, and they lead out with a lot of relational language. Hey, how are the kids? How is the job? How are things going for you? And you're like, well, that job was two jobs ago, and my kids are all grown up now, and oh, that's great, so good to hear it. And you know that what's really happening is they're coming in with all this relational language because they actually have a different goal. That's just the bridge to get to the ask, right? What they're doing is trying to get to a place where you feel connected to them enough that you'll give them what they want. And so then they come in and like, hey, you know, I'm kind of in a bad spot right now. I could use some money. Hey, I could, I could use some help. Would, would you be able to do that? Now, if you don't like this person, you're probably just going to resent them and shut them down pretty quick and walk away. But if you love this person, you're going to walk away hurt and sad. And I'll tell you why. You might give them the money because you don't want to see them hurt because they're in a crisis and you want to help them out. You want to be generous, so you give them the money knowing that once you give them the money, they're going to disappear and not connect with you anymore until they need more, right? You might do that. But here's the thing. You're not just going to give them the money. You're going to want to give them so much more. If you love them, you're going to want to give them yourself. If you love them, you're going to want to give them an intimacy and a friendship. You're going to want to meet them in their pain. You're going to want to celebrate their joy. You're going to, you're going to want to give them yourself. The problem is that's not what they're there to receive. They're there for a secondary benefit, not the primary benefit. They're there to get some money. So they're not able to receive the greater gift that you want to give. So the irony is maybe they walk away with the money they came from, and maybe they even use you, but they're the ones that are losing out. If someone only values you for what you can give them, they're not going to experience love. They're not going to experience the greater gift, which is the gift of yourself. They may get what they want, but they're going to miss what they need. Their net worth may increase, but their relational riches will shrink. Guess this is what happens when, when we approach God in an inauthentic way. When we come looking for something from God or an experience that we crave for ourselves, instead of coming to know, be known and loved and, and to meet Him in intimacy, we miss out on the greater blessing. This is why Jesus said, hey, the Pharisees got their reward. And it's the only reward they're going to get. It's not because Jesus is punishing them. It's not because God is punishing them. It's because that's all they came to get, right? They, they were praying in the public place to get what? 
the admiration of others. Now, more than likely, they walked away disappointed. They probably didn't get as much admiration as they hoped. They probably didn't get as many people patting them on the back as they wanted. But they got something. If nothing else, somebody looked at them. But that's all they came to receive, and as a result, that's all they got. They came looking for an inauthentic result, and as a result, cut themselves off from the greater blessing. Jesus says, man, isn't it sad? They're going through the motions of prayer, but they're not actually entering into intimacy with God, and as a result, they're not getting the actual blessing. They're not not growing in intimacy with God. They're not growing in connection with God. They're not growing in, in, in connection with the source of life Himself. They got a temporal hit to their pride and self-importance. But they missed the true and lasting treasure that comes from being connected to God. So how do we fix this? How do we fix this? How do we fight this this tendency toward inauthenticity and hypocrisy in our hearts? How do do we make it real? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 6. In verse 6, He says, But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's here's the solution, y'all. We need to go build ourselves private prayer closets. For real, like that's got to happen. Some of you are like, man, I got small kids. I would kill for that. (laughs) Right? Right? A place where I could go and nobody knew I was there right? Some of you are like, I can't even go to the bathroom with my door closed, otherwise my kids will hurt themselves or someone else, right? I get it. So, so I don't think we're, we're, I don't think Jesus is saying you need to have a private prayer closet as much as you might crave having that. Um, I don't think the, the point is to change where you pray. I think the point is to change why you pray. How, why go into a private place? Why, why go into a secret place? Because it eliminates the noise. It eliminates the audience. It eliminates the temptation to perform or pretend to be something that you're not or to try to get some benefit that isn't, isn't true to the relationship itself. It, it quiets the noise, right? More than a private closet, we need quiet hearts. So there's our first point. Our first step toward moving into genuine, authentic prayers, first of all, we need to foster quiet spirits before God. This is an attitude of heart more than a place that we meet God, right? It, it, is, it, is, it is an attitude of the heart because the reality is somebody who fosters a quiet spirit can move into a quiet place with God even if they're surrounded by chaos, Somebody who fosters a quiet space with God can meet with God intimately and personally even if they're in the marketplace or the synagogue or they're doing laundry or they're in the business place or they're on the commute. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't try to foster quiet spaces if we can. We live in a culture addicted to distraction. I don't know if you've noticed. Man, we live in a noisy culture. Right? We love things that blink and beep and entertain us. We, we love things that engage us and distract us. We love things that, you know, we, we, I don't know about you, like, I'm guessing I'm not the only one. What, what is your temptation? First thing you wake up in the morning. First thing. What's, what's often the first thing you do in the morning? I'm guessing a lot of us grab our phone. 
Why? Got to check the news, right? Got to find out the latest thing some crazy politician said somewhere, right? I, I got I to gotta check social media. I got to find out who liked my, my, my comment or, or who posted what or what cute kittens were, were suddenly promoted into, right? I need, to, I, need to, I need to look at Instagram. The pictures are so engaging. I got to check my email because everything is urgent. And if I don't check my email, then I'm not going to be connected to all the urgent things that are happening in life. I, I have to, I don't know what else you do with your phone right? I don't know if you know this, but the phones were scientifically designed to be addictive. The flashing lights, the bright colors, the engaging apps, they have spent millions and millions of dollars to make sure that that thing is always in your hand. Because we are a culture addicted to distraction. We are a culture addicted to noise. And what we try to do is often fill enough distraction in our life that we can float down the river of distraction and not pay attention to other more important things. Like often the deep sadness that's in our souls. Or the quiet feelings that my mundane life aren't as meaningful as they should be. Or all the other things that we just like to distract ourselves from. It's white noise. It just fills our day. Listen, if we can create a quiet space, we should. Because foster a quiet heart without pursuing a quiet space will be incredibly difficult. As those addicted to distraction, it's really, really hard to hear the quiet voice of God when you're filling your ears with the clamor of politicians. It's really, really hard to hear the quiet voice of God when you're filling your vision with all the things you're jealous of on social media. It's really, really hard to hear the voice of God when, when, when you're addicted to just seeing the next thing or hearing the next thing or reading the next thing or learning the next thing. Or, or We have to learn to create and cultivate a quiet space with God to move into this quiet space. So we need to turn off our phones, right? We can do it. It'll hurt. You can do it, right? Leave your phone in a different space. You know, try it for 10 minutes and see what happens. Um, turn off Netflix. Turn off the noise. Intentionally enter into the presence of God. And some of you are like, yeah, but Steve, I don't, you don't get my life, man. I am the parent of a young child. I never get alone time. There is never quietness. I get it, right? Steve, I work 80 hours a week in one of the most demanding fields known to man, and it is draining my soul. I get it. But you can find quiet space, if you're intentional, even in those spaces, when you're doing those mundane activities like doing the laundry or washing the dishes, right, instead of just letting your mind wander into nothing or, or you know, fantasizing or, 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 you know, putting on your phone on the shelf and putting a YouTube video on um, or watching the next TED Talk or whatever it is, turn it off. Be intentional in that space. When you're, when you're in your commute, turn off talk radio, Right? And, and be intentional in that space. Create quiet spaces. I don't know if you guys have iPhones, but if you do, one of the latest features on that thing is it starts giving you weekly updates on how often you look at it and how much time you spend on it. Man, that's been a little disturbing. Um, it tells you how long you've actually scrolled through Instagram or different things like that. I mean, if we could just tie the tenth of what we spend on social media, our prayer lives would probably be pretty good. Um, that's reality, right? We we are a distracted culture. We need to pursue uh, quietness. So washing dishes, taking a shower, driving the commute, 
if you want to create a space to connect with God, you're going to be able to find it, right? It just has to be a priority, and it has to be intentional. Like, it has to be intentional. It has to be one of those things that, that, we, that we choose to, to, to create a space for it. So even if you create a space for it, some of you find it still difficult. Like, when I first became a believer, I would create space for prayer, and then I would go into prayer, and it was just incredibly awkward. It was like having a conversation, but I was the only one that showed up. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm sitting there, and I'm like, hey, God, what do we talk about? I guess we'll talk about me, because that's the only thing I know to talk about, right? And here's the funny thing, is if you show up and you just talk about you, God will still meet you in that. He'll talk to you about you, <laughs> right? He's cool with that, um, but we can be more intentional in the conversation, right? Wouldn't it be really, really cool if God showed up and just started talking to us? Wouldn't it be really, really cool if, if God was like, man, I got, I've got a message for you. Wouldn't it be really, really cool if he like wrote you a personal letter? You know what I'm saying? Like to you that revealed his heart to you, told you who he was, told you things about you you needed to know. Wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) Yeah, he has. I think one of the most beneficial things we can do in our prayer life is start praying the word. The Bible isn't just given to us so we can know about God. The Bible is given to us so that we can know God. God meets us in these pages. God meets us in the Word. That's why it's so vital that we don't just come to church on Sunday to hear a sermon. We're actually engaging the Bible during the week. The Word of God is the primary tool the Spirit of God uses to connect us with the Son of God. Right? He, God speaks to us in the Word, and what's funny is that we can learn to speak to God in it as well. As we sit in the Word, as we think about the Word. So that means studying it, right? It's important that we understand what it says, right? It's important that we're not just cherry-picking verses completely out of context and making them mean whatever we want them to mean, right? We need to, we need to actually read whole books like we study in, in, in church together, right? That, that, we, that we learn this is what the original author meant to the original audience. We need to learn that because that's how we also learn, well, that's what it means to me, right? That's how I fit in. That's how we learn what God's actually saying to us, <clears throat> but beyond that, we need to learn to actually meditate on the Word. You know, the way we like to say it around here is sitting in the Word. I don't know where that phrase came from, but I use it a lot, right? Sitting in the Word. That's just this image to me of sitting in it, and it surrounds you, and you're paying attention to it, and you're listening to it, and we need to learn how to memorize through meditation, right? It, memorization, Bible verse memorization isn't just for, you know, some Bible club. Um, and, I, and I like memorization through meditation, and I think that's important because it's not just memorization. There's certain ways to do memorization where it's just putting it on a checklist and getting it done. And it's, hey, I got that done. I'm really proud of it. That's awesome. Did you hear God in it? Because that's actually the point. The point isn't just to memorize it. The point is to hear God in it, right? So, so um, what I have found is, is there are times I set out to purposely memorize Scripture. But there are other times, and, and honestly, the great amount of Scripture I've, I've memorized, I didn't do it intentionally. I just read it and thought about it and went over it and wrestled with it and, 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 and so much so that I started being able to quote it. And, and what I found was that, is that in those quiet times that I was creating, like for me, a lot of times it's on my mountain bike now or, or when I'm walking on the trail with the dogs, right? Instead of just letting my mind wander, those are times that I'm being intentional. 
And, and, and how do we intentionally move into the presence of God? It often can be awkward if we're not focusing our thoughts. And so focusing our thoughts on the Word helps us listen to the voice of God. So I'll just start quoting Scripture. Like I'll just, hey, can I still quote that passage? Can I still, and I'll start wrestling my way through it, and, and I'm not sure if I got that right. So then I pull out my phone and I check my version, make sure I don't pull up on my social media apps because I'll be distracted for the next 45 minutes, right? But, but, but I actually look and, and, and see, did I get that right? Oh, I got that wrong. And, and so then I, I work on it a little bit more. I can't tell you how many times God just out of the revealed something to me I needed to know. Something about himself that I wasn't seeing or something about myself that I needed to see. And it came just through this, this creating a quiet space and focusing on the Word. And God spoke to me in it, right? So, so we need to create a quiet space. We, we need to, to focus on the Word. And then we need to crave the reward. And you're like, Steve, you just totally messed up the alliteration. I know. I couldn't come up with another word for crave, so I'm just going with it. Um, you need to crave your reward. Jesus said that if you go into this pri- private space for prayer, he will reward you. Right? That's what it says, right? So that, so that you may come in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You need to crave your reward. What is your reward? <laughs> what does that mean? That when, when you go to your private space and, and you meet God there, He's going to reward you. Well, let me ask you this. What is the reward of any good friendship? It's intimacy. The greatest reward I receive from being connected to good friends is the friendship. Now, sometimes there's other cool stuff that comes with it, right? Sometimes my cool friends have ATVs and jet skis, things I love, right? That's fun, right? Sometimes my, my friends open up business opportunities to me where, where they open doors for me that I could know for myself and it allows me to, to grow in my business or to grow in my mission. That's really cool. Sometimes, sometimes my friends um, uh, make me laugh. Sometimes my, my friends are, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, like there are other benefits that come with the friendship, but what's the real benefit? It's not that stuff. It's the friendship itself. It's the intimacy itself. My life is made richer by knowing and being known, by loving and being loved. What what is the reward that your Father will give you in the quiet space? It's intimacy with Himself. Now, Now, with Him comes everything else, right? When you get Christ, you get everything else with Christ. He will bless you. He will free you. He will change you. He he will give you purpose and meaning, right? He will give you all of that, but, but the primary blessing that comes from intimacy with God is authentic intimacy with God, which is no little reward. Remember, God is the one who created us. In Him is the original stuff of life. In Him is, is, is like, we know what pleasure is, but the only reason we do is because He created this thing called pleasure. We know what security is, but it's only because He Himself is the source of security. We know what hope is, but it's only because He Himself is driven by a greater vision. He, we know what these things are. Intimacy with Him connects us with the heart of life itself. And when we are connected with the heart of life itself, God Himself, 
we will find our hope renewed. We will find our courage strengthened. We will find our faith growing. We will find our joy expanding. We will find that the richness of life is growing in our experience. And that often, even though we're not getting what we thought we want, we are getting what we need. And we are growing in the true riches of life. The greatest reward God can give us is Himself. And it's already been given to us in Christ. But often we miss it because we're showing up asking for distractions instead of reality. Asking for toys instead of intimacy asking for temporal hits to our pride or our platform instead of asking for deep and meaningful and lasting significance and security. The reward God gives us is Himself. Crave your reward. Crave intimacy with God. That kind of prayer life isn't a to-do list. That kind of prayer life, man, if if you're in the Word and your goal is intimacy with God, Maybe you didn't walk away with a transcendent emotional experience. Maybe you didn't walk away with a huge aha moment. Maybe you didn't walk away feeling like, man, that was, that was the most incredible prayer experience of my life. But you've walked away from an intimate moment with God. And just like with your friends, there are a thousand, thousand casual life-giving moments for every one transcendent life-changing moment. But they're all connected. They're all real. They're all part of the fabric of the richness of life. Crave your reward. This week, y'all, let's pursue humble honesty before God, taking off the mask and being real. And let's pursue authentic times of engaging Him being intentional to approach Him through His Word, to hear Him and encounter Him, that we might know Him and we might be known by Him. All right, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, we're going to move into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. But first, let me pray for us. Father, I thank You that You invite us near. You continually invite us near, even though we are often users people showing up to try to get something from you without knowing you, without valuing you, trying to get some blessing from you and ignoring the greater blessing of you yourself. Lord, we confess that we are often distracted and addicted to our distractions, that that we are driven by vain and empty pursuits. We set our hopes on the wrong things, and we often come to you asking you to bless these lesser goals, these lesser goods. Man, I thank you, Lord, that you are so incredibly humble that you never grow tired of us, that you never give up on us, that you never walk away from us, that you you never reject us. You invite us near because of the person and the work of Christ, because he bore our shame and covered us in his dignity, because he took our sin and covers us in his righteousness. You continually invite us to the table of grace to be known, to be seen, to be loved, to be renewed and transformed. Lord, I pray that you would ignite our hearts with the incredible privilege that is ours. That we get to come into the very throne room of God and we find there a throne of grace. Pouring out grace upon grace upon grace to meet us in our need, to strengthen us in our weakness, 
to refresh us in our exhaustion and in our sorrow and to renew our hope. Lord, awaken within us a deep craving for the reward that you give us, you yourself. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.